Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. You know, before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore and the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the Birth of Outlaw Country Music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the rise of outlaw country music and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision in her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. Hey, it's Bobby Bones. Hey, I just want to say thanks to everybody who has stepped up for the St. Jude kids. St. Jude's doing incredible work fighting childhood cancer. And because of donations, like the ones that you get, families never receive a bill ever from St. Jude for treatment, travel, housing, food, none of that. Help St. Jude stop childhood cancer. Become a partner in hope. Get this awesome new This Shirt Saves Lives shirt. It's going to look great on you. So join all the doctors, researchers, and me in this fight. All right, text the word Bobby. It's only six numbers to 785-833. Again, text the word Bobby to just these six numbers, 785-833. This is the year to stop overpaying for your family plan. So choose a straight talk wireless family plan. Unlimited data, talk, and text on a reliable 5G network. And you can get a new line starting at $25 per line per month for four lines, plus taxes and fees and no contracts. That's good decision making. Available at Walmart and on straighttalk.com. Family plan discount with four lines, all on the silver unlimited plan. Not combinable with auto pay discount. In times of traffic, your data may be temporarily slower than other traffic. Video streams at up to 480p. Welcome to episode 353. This is awesome. It's about famous failures. You know, so we've had a lot of major artists, a lot of massive songwriters come in and talk about, man, this is a time where some failure happened and they thought it sucked for their career, but actually it helped them in the long run, you know, from getting dropped from record labels and publishing deals to people that just told them, hey, as an artist, we don't think you have what it takes, uh, obviously. People are all massively successful now. So it's a reminder that you can win by losing. That's right. So, boom. Mike, what's your biggest musical failure? Your punk, your punk band? Probably my punk band, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we moved to Austin, Texas to try to make it. We toured Texas a bunch, but yeah. never quite got there. And how did that make you better? Uh, it taught me that even though you suck, if you find fun in it, it's still worth it. Oh, I was going to say it taught you not to be in a punk band anymore. <laughs> that but too. There's, yeah, no, yeah. there's no money in punk rock. What? Yeah, but that was tough, huh? Yeah. Nothing? No, nothing. I don't think we made maybe more than like 200 bucks the entire time as a band. Oh, that's pretty good if you don't really have, if you can make 200 bucks a night. And it's not good, but I'm saying that's pretty good if you can make a little money <laughs> being a punk band back. That's that's just, yeah, nobody's going to pay for that, huh? Yeah, it's tough. And it's a tough little niche. Even if you are pretty big as a punk band, you're still... Yeah, even the biggest punk bands don't make as much as you would think. Um, Once, I give you a musical failure. Once was doing a show in Springfield, Missouri at a theater there. And I had been contacted by a family saying, hey, mom, she, I don't know, she's stage four cancer, but she wants to come to the show and she'd love to meet you. And I was like, well, heck, can't believe she'd want to come to the show. I believe they said she was stage four and it was her bucket list item to meet me. And I was like, dang, well, she had a cooler bucket, but you know what? I can actually make that happen. So she came and I called her up on stage I met her before the show, then I called her up on stage because she was uh, just a big fan. And so I was like, hey, one inch in the crowds, yeah, I turn for her. And I thought, well, let's just play a song up here and I'll do a little dance with her. And I said, hey, just play the song that's on, that's next up, the next slow song on the list. And it was Ain't No Sunshine when she's gone. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was tough. We started, I was like, 
it goes, uh, I think Eddie or Brandon or somebody was singing it. And it's like, ain't no sunshine when she's gone. And I'm like, oh my God. Not this song. Not this song. <laughs> Anything for this song. And I'm like trying to, hey, go faster. Go faster. It's not one way she's away. I'm like, oh God, this does not feel good with somebody who told me this. So that, and then I reached out after. I was like, I'm so sorry. They were like, no, it was awesome. And I guess they just didn't associate it with what I associated it with. And they were just happy in the moment. And I was like, you know, sometimes she's gone. Yeah, that's a rough one. That's a ru- the whole time I'm like, oh, this is going viral for sure. So yeah, that's a pretty that's a pretty bad one there. All right, here we go. It's uh, Bobby Cast with famous failures. We're gonna kick it off with Shay Mooney from Dan and Shay on how getting out of his first deal led him to meeting Dan and forming Dan and Shay. Here you go. You go to college for a year. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then you go. I'm gonna go. I need to go do music. Yeah. What was the 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 point? in going to school where it clicked where I was like I, it's going to be tough but I got to get out of school and I, I actually it. it wasn't even a real it wasn't actually a, a school it was actually a ministry school so I went there it was like a nine month program and I had a full ride to go to like a music school and I decided right before because my sister Gabby had decided she was going to go up to Pittsburgh to go to this like nine month you know program and I was just like I kind of want to I'm going to go with you I'm going to do this and it was kind of that I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do with my life, I was about to graduate and I didn't want to go to school for something that I already felt like I was, I didn't think I was going to like learn. And, and I, if I was going for like engineering or something like that, which is probably what I would have done, I just, I, I, I didn't want to go to school for like a performance major, you know, and like learn how to sing. I just felt like that wasn't really the vibe. And so, yeah, I kind of took that, that nine months and lived in Pittsburgh. Um, and then right after that, I moved back home, which is when kind of the whole T-Pain thing happened. Which is an interesting thing too, because when you can really sing, you can also kind of pick where you sing. Yeah, and even I give Garth as an example. He was singing rock songs. Yeah, he was. You know, he was kind of finding his place early. Yeah. Um, so, how do you get discovered by? Because uh, what was it called? What was T Pain? It was called um, Nappy Boy. Nappy Boy. How do you get hooked up with them? Who? How do they see you? What are the steps that led you to go there? Yeah. Did you move to Atlanta for a while? I did move to Atlanta. So I was, so I'd lived in Pittsburgh and my sister was, she had this, uh, she was super good, she, a good dancer. Like she was a chore, choreographer and did all this stuff. And she was, had met this guy named Mike, uh, who was actually a backup dancer for T-Pain. And so we kind of all were hanging out there for a little while. And um, long story short, I, we get back to Arkansas after, you know, the school, after the nine months and we're there, and I just randomly get like a a text. Was like, "Hey, are, what are you doing?" And I knew he had worked with T Pain, and I guess he had sent some YouTube video of mine to T Pain. And I was in, I was at Van Buren actually, and I was in a movie. I'll never forget this. And I like, he was like, "Hey, like, T, he wants to like, you know, FaceTime you or whatever." And I was just like, I was in this movie, and I didn't have any service. And I was like, I was like, this is the craziest thing ever. So I go out of the movie. And my friend was like oh, one of the managers watching there. A movie. was watching a I movie. Mike, didn't you think he was like filming a movie? Yeah. I thought he was like doing <laughs> sling, yeah. I he was doing I was like sling blade yeah. in Arkansas. You might have heard of this movie. It's yeah. called Hot Rod. Uh, it was like this little project <laughs> okay. I was working on. So you leave the theater. Yeah, so I leave the So I, I walk outside and I didn't have any Wi-Fi and the service wasn't good enough. So I had to get on Wi-Fi. I think it was a FaceTime call. I can't remember if that was even a thing then, but either way, I didn't have any service. I had to like go get on the Wi-Fi. So I, my friend was the manager there and like gave me the Wi-Fi password. And I'm in like this back room at the movie theater, like FaceTiming or whatever, T-Pain. And he was like, hey, I want you to come to Memphis. Like we're playing a show there. It was him and Chris Brown. I want you to come, you know, play with us and, and do this whole deal. So I was just like, yeah, all right, let's what do it. What does do this whole deal mean? 
I didn't. I have no idea. Oh yeah. To this day, I don't know what that meant. I, you know those moments like you get the call and you're just like, yeah, whatever it is, I'm down. Yeah. I'm in. That got me into a lot of trouble probably at at some points in my life. Like whatever that is, I'm doing it. So Let's you, go. do you go to Memphis? I did. I went to Memphis. Do you and, drive uh, by yourself? How, but like, cause, I, again, you don't know what's happening. Yeah, so I took an Uber there. Yeah. I was like, oh, this is crazy. Uber actually was not a thing then, I guess. Uh, but my sister, Gabby, she she drove me up there. So I drove up there with her. We went to the show and met with him and basically go on the bus afterwards. And I think it was like T-Pain and his wife and, and Mike and all these people. And I'm just like singing. And just, uh, he was like, I want, I want to sign you. you know? And I didn't know what that, I just heard, you know, I'm going to sign you. I didn't know what that entailed at the time what that even you know looked like but yeah they ended up you know because I, I was writing uh even when i was with him when i ended up signing to him i moved to roswell georgia which is out there you know just a suburb of atlanta and uh, i started writing all kinds of stuff i mean i i had been writing like country and i had been writing pop i've been writing like r&b like all this kind of stuff but i knew that i wanted to do country and that's what that's kind of how he the song that he had even heard me covering um i think was a country song and so he was like, I, you know, this is what I want you to do. This is blah, blah, blah. And basically what I did for those, that year and a half that I lived in Atlanta was just go into the studio every day till like five in the morning and just like write to beats and, and everything else. And it was just kind of a, I don't know, it's kind of one of those just kind of honing my craft moments of like, I didn't really get anywhere. Like there wasn't, we didn't release any music or anything like that. Um, what was his goal with you? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, the, the overall goal, you know, that was kind of like pitched to me was we want to sign you to a major, you know, we want to get you to Nashville at some point, but so they was, had country music in mind for you. Yeah. Even yeah. though it was T-Pain yeah. and we all go, Oh, hip hop R&B. Yeah. And it was kind of one of those things that I didn't even have like my sound. I didn't really know what I was doing either. I was just writing songs and I had all these, you know, songs that I was writing that wasn't necessarily, I mean, they were like fine, but it just, it hadn't my identity was not found yet. You know, I just didn't really know what I was doing. So uh, it's kind of somewhere in there. Um, it's hard to put, unless I looked at a timeline, it's hard to put all this stuff into a timeline. Um, but I remember there was a moment when I was there where I was just like, what? There, we haven't put out any music. We're not doing anything. I have no idea. There was not really, the contract I signed was a 360 and I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have a lawyer at the time. So I signed this ridiculous deal. Um, and I think it was all good intentions on all parties. But I ended up at some point being like, I've got to go to Nashville. Like, I just have to get there. So I was getting, I mean, I had no money because I was getting paid, you know, whatever it was. I think I, I think I was getting paid maybe like, it was like $1,500 for 2000 or $1,500 for like, you know, per month to like live on and stuff. But I was having to pay like $500 for my, you know, my rent in Atlanta. And then I had to pay 500 off the top to like my manager that was, you know, this guy that had, had, you know, I had met in Pittsburgh. He was now my my manager, and uh, so yeah, it was a whole thing. So I, I had about after after I was moving to Nashville, I was left with about like four hundred dollars to like eat, and, like pay all, everything <laughs> on after this, and go out and expect to, like you know try to meet people in Nashville. Which four hundred dollars in a month is not a lot of not a lot of spending cash. How did you get out of the deal? Um, it ended up, you know, when I met Dan, uh, it was a whole, I mean, there was a lot of people that, that kind of helped me get that out of the deal. And, you know, whenever we had, we had met, it became kind of like a, oh man, what's, what's going to happen? Because this is, this is like a problem. I'm still in this, this deal. You Are know? you out of it now? Yeah. Yeah. So, but it was, yeah, that, that whole, that was a pretty rough little time there for a little while because it was a lot of 
there was a lot of feelings, you know, feelings hurt on I think on all sides because it was just this. I don't know. I want to go. I don't want to go like too into detail about it, but it was a rough time. I think in in his life, he was he was going through a lot, and it was just kind of I was just stuck. There was nobody to like talk to. He had he had gone away to kind of deal with some personal stuff, and yeah, it was just kind of all right. Well, I'm in this deal, and we got to try to figure out. Whenever we were talking to these labels, it was like it kind of became an issue because it rolled really fast. When Dan and I met, and we had kind of met with you know Jason Owen and Scooter, and things were kind of rolling. It was just like, well, this is this is a problem. And I was like, I was freaking out because I'm like, this is a huge opportunity, and we finally got something rolling. Tethered to something, yeah, that you can't get out of, yeah. And it was a full 360 deal. You know, it wasn't Which means like everything you're doing everything. they have a piece of, not yeah. just music, but if you put out a shirt, yeah, if you if touring, you, yeah, everything, all of it. And it was yeah, it was a rough time, but we ended up, you know, really, you know, Scooter and Jason had a huge part of of, of kind of getting me out of that deal. And but yeah, man, it was a it was a tough, you know, start, you know, because it was just even on that first record, like there was a lot being being taken out, you know, and it was just kind of like thankfully I didn't have you know a family at that time or no, you know, it's not like I was I wasn't completely broke whenever we had you know Dan and I had met and si- and finally signed. You know, we had like a, a lot more money than I had. You right. know, to begin with, I was it was enough to live on. But they they did a a great job of kind of helping me get out of that. And you know, Warner Brothers and Espo and all those guys. It was yeah, everybody was really good. So so the 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 legend of the fort, which in different places we've talked about, but you guys <laughs> met in a living room fort. Yeah, at a house which you've been back by. I've, I've even seen you guys post it before. Yeah. Um, Dan was living in that house. Yeah. And you went over to the house? I did. So I was living on, uh, I was living with my buddy actually at the time. Um, I had, I was, I was, I think I was maybe, <laughs> I don't even remember if I, if I even was paying him, but I was basically sleeping on his couch for like a little while. His name was Brandon Metcalf, great guy. And he had a studio and I was like working a lot with him when I had moved to Nashville and kind of had my place. And um, there was a guy named Andrew um, that just one night, we had been writing a lot and he told me, he's like, man, I, I'm going over to the, these guys' house. They had a band at the time. He's like, they're having a house party. Uh, you know, you want to come with me? And I was just like, yeah, sure, let's do it. And at that time, it was just kind of like, anytime you could go somewhere without spending any money, <laughs> and you knew that there was like, we knew that there was a keg free there. And I was like, free this entertainment is entertainment and a little bit of great. nourishment. That's yes. all you're chasing. That's all I was chasing. I was like, do you think they got like pizza or yeah, something? Yeah. Like, <laughs> I haven't eaten in like a couple of days. But it was like, yeah, we showed up at this house and little did I know that that night was going to completely change my life. You guys start talking that night. When was it that you said, okay, we're actually going to try something together, which means putting everything else aside. There's, yeah. a, there's a difference in going, hey, we should do something together yeah. and going, we're doing something together. I would even say it's comparable to in that part of a relationship where you're just dating and yeah. you go, we're only dating each other now. Yeah. So that means nothing else can exist yeah. except us. What was that point where you guys finally said, we're just dating each other? Well, it was uh, you know, not until just a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we, uh, it kind of happened, it happened really naturally where Dan and I started writing. Really, I think it was either that next day or like the day after that we had met. We were jamming until probably like four in the morning or something like that. And I think we had decided to write. So we get up the next day and uh, we go, we met at like a Starbucks or something. And then we ended up going to, uh, this this guy that I was Jesse Frazier. I'm sure that he's you're been on this show. I know him and he's been here. Love before. him. Yeah, one of the greatest guys. When I had for quick side side notes, this all makes sense. Jesse, when I had first moved to town, I had a friend and I asked him. I was like, "Who is doing like beats?" Because I had been writing 
to a lot of beats. I'd been writing like country songs to beats, uh, which is now like a common thing, but it was just kind of becoming a thing then. And I was like, who is a great track guy in that Na- in Nashville? And the first name that he's that my friend was Nash Overstreet, which is Paul Overstreet, the songwriter. Uh, and he was like Jesse Frazier. So I started writing with Jesse um, a lot. And then whenever Dan and I had met, I was like, let's go write with with you know with Jesse Frazier or at at his place. So we ended up writing our first uh, writing session. I think we wrote two songs that that day, and one of them got put on hold that night for Rascal Flats. So what you wrote a song that day? Yeah, they sent it out. Yeah, maybe to Flats because yeah. they thought uh, it was sensible yeah. for them. That night it got put on hold. I think it was that night. Yeah, like when we got home, they were like, "This is on hold for Flats." And for us, we're like, <laughs> "Things things are heating up. Wow. Things are really really good." Which if you know, you know what a hold is. It's, it, it, they never cut the song or anything like that. But for us, it was just like it was legitimately like Rascal Flats heard our song. That was a huge and as small as that you know might seem now, you know in our minds, it still it was such a big deal because it was you know you have these big dreams when you're coming to town, and it was kind of that first taste of like whoa, this is like somebody who who has done it, who is a successful artist has they liked our song and put it on hold. So that was a huge deal for us, and that was kind of the the fuel to be like, we should, let's, let's, you know, keep doing this. Cause we liked, you know, what songs we were writing. Would you compare that early part of you and Dan? And I don't mean this facetiously at all, but when you meet a girl, like yeah. when you and Hannah meet and you're like, Oh my God, this is it. Like it's yeah. similar to that feeling with yeah. him as it was. Cause if you're writing till four in the morning, that's what you do when you talk to a girl till four yeah. in the morning. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, I don't think for either of us, we just were kind of, it wasn't. It was different than when I met my wife because when I met Hannah, I literally told my friend Benji Davis, who's a writer in town. He, I told him like right then. It was in Arkansas. It was like our first date. It was at George's Majestic Lounge, and I, I like walked her out to her car, and I got back on the bus, and I was like, "I'm gonna marry that girl." Literally said like that night. With Dan, it was like we were having fun writing these songs. We didn't necessarily like we thought they were good, but we didn't necessarily be like. We're gonna make this marry is each it. Other. Oh. We're not gonna we're, or or marry each other. <laughs> Neither one of those were, were on my mind, and I think it just kind of happened naturally to where like we thought the songs were good, but as you do, you know, when it's when it's your work, we thought it was good, and it, we knew. I think the most exciting thing for us was there was an aha moment, but it wasn't necessarily like oh we're gonna be a duo. It was like this is the kind of music that I've been trying to write. This is all like everything has kind of led to this. You know, it was like the stuff that I had been wanting to write but just couldn't. Hadn't quite found the sound yet. So, are you saying that when you two first started, it was m- like we found partners in creating more so than we're yeah. going to go be a duo? It was exactly that. It was like, oh man, this is like this is the kind of stuff. It, it was like better than any of the stuff that I had been writing in town. And I think for both of us, it was just kind of like, well, this is like we we got something special here. So then, how long until you decide you're going to actually pursue the artist thing together? Yeah. So we started to all these songs we've been writing because we we did start to write a lot together. And so the more that we wrote, we would just start doing like these writers rounds and like playing these songs for our friends. And like our friends and everybody were getting hype on these songs. Like this is the greatest song. <laughs> like we were doing, like we were in 507 uh, Morton Avenue was the place. I, I can say it because we've said it a million times. I'm sure that the owner of that house hates us for probably talking about it all the time. Um, but it was like, I think we would go to, the, we went to the house one time I specifically remember. And I think it was uh, P. Tracy who now does all of our video stuff. It was his birthday. And we, I remember we shot like a, a fake music video for one of the songs because we thought it was so good. And it was just like, it was just ridiculousness. We were having so much fun. And it was just like, man, this, this stuff is really cool. So we started to play all the, all the music out, like rounds and stuff. And then Dan and I, we had eventually like 
there was actually an opportunity that we had to go down, um, and I had booked a show. It was just like Shea Mooney. And we were opening up, we did two shows together without actually being like a band at all. It was just like he was there with me and we were playing all the songs we had written. And one was at Georgia's opening for Chris Allen. And I thought that we, I thought I made it then. I was like, this is, you know, things are really starting to take off. And then another one we played was at, in Conway um, at, at UCA. There was this kid who, who booked me and I thought it was going to be like the biggest show ever. And I think this, it was in their like little performing arts theater, which probably holds like, I don't know, maybe 1500 people. And there was probably like 15 people in there. <laughs> and uh, right after that, we went down to Austin, Texas because my lawyer had set up this like a uh, showcase basically uh, for us. And we went down, we put together a band, the whole deal. Dan and I drive down in my truck and we ended up playing the show and it was, I'm not kidding. There was, there was honestly probably like four people in the room and one was my lawyer. One was like a bartender girl in the back. And then our friend Paul DiGiovanni, which ended up writing uh, how not to for us used to be in the band boys like girls. He was there. And then Dan's lawyer. And there was like no other people there. We rehearsed for like four days and we, were, we thought it was going to be like our big break. And uh, yeah, it, it wasn't our big break. But at, at that time, it was, I think on the way back from that trip, we kind of made the decision of like, we've been doing these shows together. Like we should, we should, kinda, we should do a duo. And I think it's hard to kind of put all this in my mind to like line it up. But kind of when we were writing all these songs, um, there was a guy who, had, who knew, he worked for Scooter Brown at the time. His name was Nano. And he knew Scooter, and he had kind of been talking to, to Scooter, I guess, about us. And uh, yeah, during that time, Scooter in, ends up, we were at a writing session, and uh, we had kind of decided, like, all right, we're going to do this, this duo thing. And uh, once we kind of decided that was when Scooter had heard about us, and we were in a writing session uh, at a guy named Danny Orton's house. And there was, he FaceTimes us and basically says, like, I want to work with you. And uh, Ed Sheeran was, was there, which is really funny because he was like, Will you guys play that song that I like? It was a song called Stop, Drop, and Roll that was actually on our first record. We had like just written it. And he was like, play that song. So we, we played it. And at the end, he was like, my friend wants to hear the song because he really loves it because we had sent him maybe like a demo or something. And Ed Sheeran like pops in. He's like, hey, guys, how are you? Which <laughs> is like the worst Ed Sheeran impression. Of, hey, guys, how are you? And he, yeah, we like sang Stop, Drop, and Roll acoustic like over FaceTime to him. And that was kind of the start of it. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots, and Tacova's is your next stop before attending your next concert. Tacova's has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring. You're talking about men's boots, women's boots, um, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tacova's boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition, timeless style, always on trend. And Tacova's has first wear comfort, little to no break-in period. Like it's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Plus, direct consumer pricing keeps the value on your feet, the money in your pocket. So stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink, shop the new styles. You like the smell of leather or no? I love it. Yeah. That's what the whole store basically is. Fresh leather. Yep. Friendly staff. Or like the smell of staff? <laughs> I don't know. I guess I'm sure they smell good there. Many stores have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. What a gift, too. Regular live music and events. There is no in-store experience like this. If you can't make it to a store, just visit tecovas.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S. Yeah. Yeah. Tecovas.com. Find your new favorite pair of boots today. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How do the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. 
Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the Birth of Outlaw Country Music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer shaped the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed as the Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, that's where they would spur each other and tap into something bigger and something realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Backrack as Shel Silverstein and T.J. Osborne as Johnny Cash alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the boar's nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The boar's nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. Hey, it's Bobby Bones. I just want to say thanks to everybody who has stepped up for the kids at St. Jude. St. Jude's been leading the way in the world's best survival rates for some of the most aggressive forms of childhood cancer. Your support means that families never get a bill from St. Jude for treatment or travel or housing or food so the families can focus on helping their child live. And that really hits home for me because I've been to St. Jude many times. I've hung out with the kids, played music for the kids. I was in the hospital a lot as a kid. Now, I didn't have cancer, but if it wasn't for people stepping up, I don't know that I would have been able to go and stay in the hospital and be taken care of. So that's why we do this, take care of others. You can help St. Jude stop childhood cancer by becoming a partner in hope. When you do this, you'll get this awesome new This Shirt Saves Lives shirt. So join all the doctors and researchers, you know, and me in this fight and just text the word Bobby to 785-833. It's only six numbers, but text the word Bobby to 785-833. Okay, so here we go. Here's Luke Combs. On the guy who told him he'd never be an artist after he performed for this guy. And pretty cool story because obviously Luke Combs is the biggest thing in country music right now. The tweet you posted where you said, I think the topic was tell me something about yourself that no one will believe. Mm-hmm. And I, the gist of it was that you came to town and you had some songs and people were like, hey, they weren't good. Mm-hmm. And your whole thing was don't let anyone let you stop chasing your dreams. Yeah. Those meetings where you were rejected, are they vivid to you? The early meetings? Definitely. Um, the one in the meeting in particular was with somebody, it was, a, you know, they have like the artist, like writer reps at, at like BMI. So I had a friend that had a rep there and I went in and I was like very excited because I had just moved to Nashville at this time and I didn't know anybody, you know, I, I knew a couple writing buddies and was going out and playing a few writers rounds and, and writing songs every day. And cause by that time I was living off of those songs that I had put out the previous year and i went in and it was kind of like this this person was like well play me three songs and i was like oh cool like this person's gonna be like i'm gonna play these three songs and like they're gonna walk me into the best publishing thing and they're gonna be like this guy's great like how could you not love this guy give him a publishing deal so i played hurricane when it rains and one number away which were my first three number ones and they were like Okay, here's the deal. You got to get better at songwriting. You got to write better songs. <laughs> and you're never going to be an artist. So that's it. And I was like And I wasn't like mad. Do you know who said it? Yeah, but I'm not going I'm not going to say it. I would never ask you to yeah. say it, but I'm just asking if you know who said oh, it. Oh, I know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Have you seen them since? I, yeah, I've ran into them uh awkwardly at actually the BMI awards. 
Do you think they ago. remember telling you that, or do you I think don't you think were just so. someone that was coming nope. through, turning through the system? I don't think so at all. Which is fine. You know, I have I have nothing against that person. You know what? Because I get it, man. I mean, it's it's like if you look at it would I would I would equate it to at that level. You know, because you're not even screened at all at that level. Like any Tom, Dick, or Harry can walk in off the street pretty much to BMI and get one of those meetings. So I can't imagine the pressure of like, okay, well, I've got six kids that moved to town yesterday that want to come in and they all think they're awesome. And I've got to be able to figure out which ones I think are good enough to go on to the next thing. And so I wasn't mad about it at all. I'm actually very thankful for that meeting. Because I did go out and feel like I wrote some of the best songs that I had ever written. Because I was like, man, I got to I gotta write more and, and do better. Like, I'm not even close to as good as I need to be. And so I just kept my head down. And I went and wrote a ton of songs. And, and then there were, kind of the rest is just kind of fell into place. I mean, I know that's, you know, summarizing a big chain of events, but that's kind of how it felt. I got a few minutes left here. I wanted to run a couple other things by you that I'd heard. First of all, a lot of folks come in, myself included, that worked retail because yes. we, we kind of had to. Yep. You got to pay the bill somehow as mm-hmm. you're chasing your creative endeavor. Yes. And uh, I worked at Hobby Lobby. Uh, Mike, who was in? Uh, Michael Hobby from Thousand Horses yep. worked at The Buckle. Okay. You worked at IZOD. I did. I did. <laughs> How'd <Yes>. that go? <laughs> I was not a great fit uh, at IZOD. Um, but I had, you know, I had as much fun with it as you could possibly have folding people's golf sweaters. You know, um, it was in an outlet mall, like one of those like Tanger outlets or whatever they call it. They had one in Blowing Rock, which is right down the road from Boone. So it was, I mean, it was pretty, pretty miserable. And how long did you do that? I probably worked there for, I mean, close to a year, probably, I would think. And whenever you are walking past a table of shirts that are messy... (laughs) Does it bother you, and will you refold a shirt? No chance. No, <laughs> no chance. I, but I'll tell you what, I do, I do fold a mean shirt, you know, uh, when, I'm, when I'm doing the laundry at home, which I'm sure people are surprised. I do do laundry. Uh, my fiancé does handle the brunt of the laundry, um, but I do, I do chip in quite a bit, you know, help fold stuff. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not afraid to do laundry. I, I, don't, I don't mind it at all. But will you I, separate it, or do you yeah. just throw it all in? I, I, if I wasn't in a committed relationship, I would throw it all Cause in. I throw it all in. Yeah. But I do separate it now just because that's what, but now it's like her stuff's in there, which is the thing. Like mine are just old, like gross t-shirts and jeans really. So I'm not too worried about them like shrinking or like, but now there's this whole, like, don't wash this thing with that thing and don't dry this thing, but it's gotta be tumble dried, but don't put it in with this thing that has to be high heat. And then some stuff is like cold water. And so it's, I mean, it gets pretty mathy to me, you know? And, and we so, know you don't like and math. I don't like math. You left Appalachian State because you I didn't, left school because You I didn't even take math. laundry. That was like yes, year three. That was year three, and I skipped laundry class. That's for sure. Uh, the, the bank bag, I'm curious about, that you used mm-hmm. to save money in. Yep. So you went and bought one of those bank bags. It zips. like mm-hmm. It's kind of like your wallet. With the lock on it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what was that about in... in where was this money coming from you were sticking in the bag? So I had <clears throat> I had started playing shows, and, and when Cappy moved to town after he started managing me, he had never managed anybody before. Um, you know, he kind of blew through his life savings, like trying to build my career, and 
And so he he made a promise to me. He was like, hey, man, I'm not going to take a commission until you're actually making enough money to, like, live off of. And so at the time, you know, the gigs were, I mean, they could have been $250 a night. They could have been $1,000 a night. And those were, $1,000 was really good, you know. And so we would go and, and do those gigs and, excuse me, I would take, you know, T-shirt money, whatever was left over, and, and Cappy was great because he would always go settle the show. You know, he would run me through the statement every night, and hey, here's what we got, and here's what we did, and here's the tickets and this. And, and there would always we – were, we were selling out everything, you know, at that time, uh, which is great on those club gigs because usually they, they'll, they'll kick you back a pretty, like, sweet bonus, and it's always cash. And so that's where the money was coming from was the, these sellout bonuses on these club shows. And so I would – I was like – I remember getting to thinking I had, like, five or $6,000 in my apartment, you know, and I was like, man, like somebody could just walk in here and like take this if they wanted to. So I had like a Folgers can. And instead of putting just the money in there, I put it in the bank bag and then rolled the bank bag up and put it in there. It was back like behind my microwave on my counter. My microwave kind of sat like in a corner. So it was kind of, there was that space behind, behind it. it. Yeah, because yeah. it was diagonal. Yeah. yeah. And so that's what, that's what I, that's where the money was coming from. And that's what I, I did with it at that time. All right, here's one with Jason Aldean. And we're talking to Jason about this, and this is him now, because he didn't feel like this back in the day, but this is him now being glad his first record deal did not work out. You know, I mentioned all the number ones and all the success and awards, but I think, and if someone just was introduced to you, you are Jason Aldean, the country superstar, but, you know, I talk a lot and have written an entire book on failure and how important it is to, to learn. Like, if you look at your professional career, and you look back at a failure that actually made you a better entertainer, a better performer, a, any of that. Like, what was that thing that didn't work out? Or you're like, man, I'm kind of glad that didn't work out because I learned from it. Um, I would say when, uh, when I got dropped from Capitol Records early on, I got signed to Capitol Records in about 2000, I think it was. And uh, I was on the label for a year, never even recorded one song for them. And, uh, and got dropped from the label. And, and so that was tough, man. It was like I'd spent, you know, th- I mean, that was the brass ring. That's what I was after. And to finally get that and to not even really get a chance to prove myself before I got dropped was just, I don't know, it, it did a lot. It, it, it was like it was sad, but it also, like, kind of pissed me off a little bit. And uh, to me, that was the thing that made me, like, really want to go out and, and kind of prove myself. And and, um, and that's why when I got my next uh record deal offer it was from broken bow records which was a little independent label um really didn't even have any superstars i mean craig morgan was over there and and was having some some just starting to have a couple hits Uh, i think sheree austin was over there at the time and had a hit or two but they really didn't have a whole lot going on and so um you know i signed over there with no clue how that was going to work out but at least it was somebody willing to give me an opportunity and and i think for a long time i sort of carried that chip on my shoulder to, to go out and really want to prove myself. So I would, I would say that was the main thing. Why would you be signed? And I understand why you would get dropped if you had put out a single that didn't do well. or you. But why would they sign you and then drop you before giving you a legitimate chance? Well, so I signed over there. Um, the, the head of the label was, uh, was a guy named Pat Quigley. And so when, when they signed me, and so – Literally, before I could sign my deal, 
um, the new president came in, which is Mike Dungan, who who is there now, and and I've since talked to Mike, and we we're great. Like I love Mike, but he came in, and I just don't really think he he got it. I don't think he was a believer in in what I was doing at that time, and um, and so I think. He went ahead and signed the deal, but I don't think he was ever really a believer in it. And so it, ultimately it just kind of fizzled out and, and went away. When you came to town, though, that was a bit of a jolt to the system. And, you know, I didn't, on a much smaller level, like I understand that because when I came here, people were like, what is this? I don't understand it. It ain't going to. And I kind of had to beat it into submission. Mm-hmm. And here you were. You look different. You sounded different. There was a little more of an edge. Did you get a lot of that? Like, I just don't get it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, li- I go back and listen to some of the stuff we were doing early on, and, and as edgy as I thought it was at the time, I listened to it now, and I'm like, it's re- it really wasn't. But at the time, it was. And so, um, you know, I think there was a little bit of that. I mean, we were we were different than anything else that was out at the time. And and so, um, but I, I think the best thing that could happen to me was, like, I didn't, I didn't really know the rules. Like, you know, I didn't know there, there were rules. I didn't know you couldn't, I remember, I remember having earrings and that being a huge thing, earrings and a cowboy hat. And I'm like, really? I've had these since I was 17 years old. Like I, it wasn't that big a deal for me, but, um, if you don't know the rules, you don't play behind. Yeah. And so it, to me, it was just like, you know, you just kind of went, went along business as usual. And, uh, I don't think we really knew at the time that what we were doing was kind of, you know, changing the game a little bit. With you having your own label now, Night Train Records, I would assume all of that that you've learned along the way, both failures and successes, uh, like has made you a better head of a label? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, I, I think it's just experience, you know. I mean, it's it's guys, I mean, with, with other artists that we have, um, just having them be prepared for things or if something pops up, it's like, you know, I'm sure that I've either gone through it or, or you know, have witnessed it. So, you know, it, it's... I can talk to those guys on a, on a level of like, okay, I've seen this before. I've been through this. This is what's going to happen. This is how how you deal with it. Um, You're not just an executive. Like you've actually, you are, but now you, but you've done all of what they're doing. You've right. been through every single step of it. So you can empathize more than just sympathize. Yeah, absolutely, man. I mean, and, and, you know, I try to be, you know, not only like kind of run the label, but label, but also, you know, produce those guys. And like, um, you know, a guy we're working with, John Morgan, he's on this new America's uh, songwriter contest show that's out right now. You know, he's representing North Carolina. And so, you know, having a talk with him, he's like, you know, I don't know. This is an opportunity we have. You know, what do you think? And sitting down and talking to him about those kind of things. And, um, you know, it's just just kind of been there, done that, and, and can at least give some insight into whatever it is they got going on. The guy any good? He's great. great. I can't wait for you guys to hear him. Have we not? It's nothing out. Uh, he's got a song out. We released something last year just because we took him out on tour with us. It's called Coldest Beer in Town. And um, we just you know wanted to have something out on him while he was out on tour with us for people to go get. But uh, but his big launch is, is coming this year. So he, he's, uh, he was a writer on the Carrie duet, and he's also a writer on the, the new song we got, Trouble with a Heartbreak. Here is Tim McGraw, and this is Tim McGraw's biggest failure that happened when Bruce Springsteen asked him to perform at a tribute. Pretty funny story from Tim McGraw right here. Was there a moment in your career that you look back at that was a massive failure and you go, I'm really glad that happened because I learned a lot from it that allowed a lot of those successes. Well, you know, you always learn more from your failures than you do your successes. And, you know, I certainly have had my moments where I wasn't the best person I could be or the best artist I could be. You know, I've had those moments for sure. Um, But 
the biggest massive failure and embarrassment that I had was at the Grammy Cares one year. Um, Bruce Springsteen, who's a friend of mine and one of my favorite people in the world, asked Faith and I to to do Tougher Than the Rest together for his the honor of honoring him at the at the thing. And there were all these huge artists were there. I mean, Neil Young, I mean, you, Sting, you name it, they were all there performing Springsteen songs. And, and anybody that knows Springsteen, you know, it's so hard to cover his songs because a lot of them are so left-footed and, and wordy and all that kind of stuff. So we're sitting at his table, and he goes, you know, at the end, I'm, I'm getting up and doing, uh, oh, what's that song? One of the songs, with, I mean, anyway, we got up, and I said, sure, we'll, I'll, we'll get up and sing. So we all, we're all on stage, all these artists are on, on stage, and it was one of those songs where everybody knows the first verse and knows the chorus, but nobody ever really knows the second verse. So we're standing there, and he turns around and says, hey, Black Hat, come sing the second verse. And I'm like, I can pull this off. And I go up, and I just a total fail. I couldn't find the phrasing. I didn't know the words. I mean, it was terrible, and I was so embarrassed. It was one of those nights I've just ruined my career. I've just ruined my career. Luckily, because it aired, luckily I got to go back and fix it, and they were able to cut away, and, and so it didn't look like I forgot the words. But it was it was, uh, it was was one of those things. I can't do it on in front of everybody, but Faith was standing beside me, and I got up and sang, tried to sing it, and when I stepped back, she did like a – a little bit of a sidestep away from it. <laughs> like, like, I don't know, I don't know guy. that guy. That's funny. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots, and Tacovas is your next stop before attending your next concert. Tacovas has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring. You're talking about men's boots, women's boots, um, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tacovas boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition, timeless style, always on trend. And Tacovas has first wear comfort, little to no break-in period. Like, it's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Plus, direct consumer pricing keeps the value on your feet, the money in your pocket. So stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink, shop the new styles. You like the smell of leather or no? I love it. Yeah. That's what the whole store basically is. Fresh leather. Yep. Friendly staff. Or like the smell of staff? <laughs> I don't know. I guess I'm sure they smell good there. Many stores have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. What a gift, too. Regular live music and events, there is no in-store experience like this. If you can't make it to a store, just visit tecovas.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S. Yeah. Yeah. Tecovas.com. Find your new favorite pair of boots today. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How do the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the Birth of Outlaw Country Music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer shaped the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed as The Boar's Nest, Sue's place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, that's where they would spur each other and tap into something bigger and something realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Backrack as Shel Silverstein and T.J. Osborne as Johnny Cash alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the boar's nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The boar's nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. 
Hey, it's Amy Brown here to talk about the incredible work that's being done by St. Jude Children's Research Hospital and to ask you today to join me in becoming a partner in hope. When you make a donation to St. Jude, you're helping an organization that has helped push the overall childhood cancer survivor rate from 20% to more than 80%. And I can tell you from personal experience, that number and the hope that it brings is invaluable. Families do not have to worry about a thing. Treatment is covered, travel, housing, food. And when you're a family that's going through this, like imagine you're a parent, your kid gets cancer. You need to focus on that child. You don't need to be worrying about other things. And financial stuff can get really stressful. St. Jude covers it. Your support means families never receive a bill from St. Jude for treatment. And when you sign up for just $19 a month, you're going to get the new This Shirt Saves Lives tee. So join me in helping St. Jude in the fight against childhood cancer. Become a partner in hope and text Bobby to 785-833. That's B-O-B-B-Y to 785-833. Here's Jimmy Westbrook from Little Big Town. This is him talking about how they got dropped from their first record deal just months after signing at the time. Kind of destroyed them. But now, very happy it happened, obviously. From that point where you meet Philip, when did you have to create the LLC or that now it's an entity. Mm-hmm. Like we aren't just friends that are singing, making 40 bucks for mm-hmm. four of us to split. We're now going to pursue this. And if we're going to pursue it, it's got to exist. So when did that happen? It was right right around that same time. I mean, it, it all happened. Like from the time that I said I was going to do this to the time we, um, that was maybe at the end of 98 when we were, Having these conversations, I moved in February of 99. We were a four-person group, all the four existing members, and just a few months later had a record deal. So that was all super fast. Getting we, a record deal. I was- moved here in February, and we started. I, <laughs> I remember I just opened up that branch of that company, and I was already going, hey, I'm not going to be able to come. We were going to go sing for some labels. and. That kind of thing. They they were super. Uh, I was really upfront about all that when I moved. I'm like, I have this intention, so you're probably going to run into this issue with me. And so when it happened, they were. It's like Alabama football. They, I have an intention they, to watch the game. You're going to run into this issue. <laughs> the bus isn't parked where I can get signal. Thinking ahead. Yes. It, uh, that's pretty quick to get a record deal. Yeah. I mean, we sang for six labels. Uh, we took a, one guitar. I didn't even really play guitar at that time. Um, took it in and sang live in front of all the record execs, and we got about five offers out of the six. Jeez. So yeah. I, if I'm you, I'm going, well, we're one step away from fame and fortune. Oh, it's on. Yeah. <laughs> when did you realize that that's not quite how it works? Well, we um, we got our record deal. We, In fact, the, sign, the night we signed with Mercury Records, which lasted about four months maybe, um, we got a spot at the Opry to play. We only knew three songs. We played all of them. Um, And then they immediately whisked whisked us away in a limo to the airport to go sing at the De La Hoya fight for the national anthem. And when we were getting picked up in limos at, at the airport in Vegas, I was like, oh, this is on. And then we lost our, we, well, we didn't, we walked away from that. It was a handshake walk away not many months after that. So it was quickly a, a like, oh, this this is not going how I thought it was going to go. 
Well, I'm going to ask you, and, and I'll have you expand on both of these, but the harshest reality once you get a deal, and then, mm. but then actually kind of the greatest fairy tale that because you've been able to experience both. I'll say that you guys are, in my mind, if I'm just uh, speaking of my thoughts and feelings here, which is often what I do, <laughs> like um, you guys have really worked. Everybody works hard. Mm -hmm. You guys have worked hard, and you've had a boom, big song. I like what you guys do, though. You try to push in different directions. Yeah. And at all times, it's not always, people aren't always receptive of new things. Mm -hmm. And I always admired that you guys continue to try that regardless. Yeah. And so you say there's a gap, but in my mind, I'm like, yeah, probably a gap because people didn't understand what you guys were trying at the time, right? right. Like, that's how I interpret. You're not saying it, that's how I'm interpreting mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Because I've been able to experience a lot of it, not beside you, but running in a parallel path. Yeah. So when I say harshest reality, biggest fairy tale, you've got to have them both. Let's yeah. start with the harshest reality of what it is that you do and, and what you've had to experience. Well, I mean, I think... I immediately go to to the time when I was just telling you that um, the Mercury deal started going awry. Um, How'd you know it was going awry? Did you feel it? Did something? <laughs> it was made very. We were made aware that it was we. Without going into too much of the the backside of of all that, we we basically signed at Mercury, cut a few sides. And when the powers that be at that time at Mercury heard the sides that we did, we cut about four songs. Um, they basically said, hey, if if any of this is who you are, we're not interested. Oh, really? <laughs> they, they, they were just were not interested. Yeah. In and so uh, the harshest reality was, um, I think in that moment, I remember them saying all of that. Um, and basically felt like we had an ultimatum. Like our, So I, I just remember going to the parking lot after that conversation and all of the, the four of us sitting in a car shell-shocked. I mean, we just signed our deal. We had did, you know, the De La Hoya fight. This is, and then all, all of a sudden now that's about to be yanked out from under us. We're about to lose our record deal. But I'll tell you this. In that moment, and I think that was a pivotal moment for the band as far as what you're talking about of pushing and following our gut and our heart and where we musically want to go. We had that decision to make that day. And it was the hardest decision probably, oh, well, I know at that time that we've made. It was incredibly difficult because... We were, we were sitting there having to ask ourselves, is any part of what we just presented them us? And it was. You know, some of the production might not have been quite the right direction, but we're still experimenting, trying to figure out who we are. But the harmony structures and all of that of what we presented was us. So we made the decision ourselves that we were going to walk away from it because if they're telling us that they don't want any of that, then we can't stay here. That's... That's not going to be true that's, to ourselves. That's a tough decision. And and but it also set the the ground work for who we became as a band as far as living and dying by our own decisions. Now, and, when yeah. I mentioned on the other side of that, like the like it's so great it's weird. <laughs> like they're, they're you're like, "Wow, 
this is going so wonderfully that it feels like it's the dream because I I'm lucky enough to get those moments too. I mean, where you're just like, I can't, yeah. I can't believe it's happening. I feel like I have so many of those moments, but um, it's always to me the unexpected, unbelievable moments like collaborations that you do with people, or the the being asked to be an Opry member. It's the things that you didn't even take the time to dream up because you're like, oh, I didn't know that was possible. Um, it's kind of all of those moments of, um, you know, singing on a John Mellencamp record. Like, we, we ended up doing nine songs on one of his records as the vocals for his thing. It's, it's those kinds of moments that you get to share the stage with people that you're just like, I, I don't, how, I'm from Summerton. How mm-hmm. did I... How did I, how am I standing up here on this stage with this person? And those are the moments that I'm so grateful for, and that you can't plan. Um, that they just kind of work themselves out and happen, and uh, it's you just walk away going, "Man, what a what an incredible blessing this has all been." Here's Russell Dickerson with his wife Kaylee on how he got dropped from his first publishing deal, getting paid to write songs, and how he sat on his first big hit, "Yours." for two years before being able to record it. That whole deal from back then, that pub deal, did it turn into all the things you thought it was going to, career-wise? No. no. You still with the same publishing company? Mm-mm. Also, oh, you're out of all of that. Yeah, that was that the first. I signed in 2011. That was a two-year deal, got dropped it, after two years. Um, and then that was 2013. And I didn't even write yours until 2014. And then... I didn't sign a deal till 2016. Well, so you, like you had I written mean, that it, song and it's out for two years, huh? Yeah. Well, what's kind of the, the genesis uh, of you writing that song and it took a second for it to kind of happen? Yeah. So you write, like, just tell me about the... the I mean, so the overall picture is January 20-something, 2014 is when we wrote it. And then January 20-something, literally almost to the day. 2017. 2018. Four years later. Four years is when it went number one. So four years in between that was I had one offer for a publishing deal. We took it. We had to. We had no. Got to pay the bills, We just got married. I got dropped the week we got back from our honeymoon. So that was a great. Mm -hmm. We made $12,000 that year. Yeah. Combined. Yeah, so that was that was year one of marriage, and then so 2014 we wrote it, and I mean we just we went all around town. Everybody said no, all the majors, all the indies, every I mean literally. And were you were you chasing an artist deal with that song, or were you also mm-hmm. pitching the song as no. well? So you want you, yeah, you wrote just, it, you're like it's mine. Yeah, I'm totally. gonna die on this hill. Yeah, the whole the whole this whole time I was like, I'm an artist writer, you know, like that was that was what I wanted to do, and so. Uh, yeah, it was just like, I, I, we obviously didn't take no for an answer, but I just put everything on this one song. I was like, I know, I know that I know that I know this is a hit. And, and it took, I mean, another two years from writing it to, to go to labels and showcases and do the whole dance. And, uh, it wasn't till, uh, 30 Tigers slash now Triple Tigers They've just started a whole brand new label, and it was it was Norbert Nix who had just got let go from Sony, and like Kevin Herring who just got let go from Warner. It's all these guys who kind of you know 
related to this this like uh, being rejected kind of mentality, like a little chip on your sure. shoulder, a little bit. And uh, and it just all came together with this tiny little label. I was the only artist on there, and they had me, one song, and that was that was what really ignited. I mean, I I, I missed the whole video part, but no, in, industry wise, yeah, yeah. industry wise, that that was what what really like took took it. You know, they, at what point? Because the label was a small independent label, tiny. So it's. It's difficult because they don't have the the promotion infrastructure, right? For for an independent, they, mm-hmm. they just don't have arms and and fangs everywhere. Mm-hmm. So, but at what point though did you realize? Oh, we actually have a shot with this thing. Like this thing could actually be a massive hit. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, what was it? A number on the chart? Yeah, was like it top a, thirty. I was really. gonna say top thirty. Yeah. Yeah. Like, You're like well, were, were you hearing about research? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Because it was yeah. also a ballad. Exactly. And they're oh dear God, don't play don't a ballad. Ever play right. a ballad. But then it started jumping. Like it was only in the twenties for like three weeks, four weeks, something mm-hmm. like that. It was like jump two spots, jump three spots, jump, and then it was in the teens. And we were like, whoa, 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 what's happening? Yeah. <laughs> Did you do this song on any any TV? On any anything? On our favorite. Did you do The, the Bachelor? Bachelor? It, it seems like uh, The Bachelor. Okay, yeah. I don't know this, but it seems yeah. like this would this would be that kind of song. Yeah. Big, yeah. big pop from that show. Absolutely. Who was, was the couple? Uh Rachel and Dean. Rachel, uh, she was She was like, she was like two like bachelorettes four, ago. Yeah. Maybe? Yeah. Dean was just Deanie Babies. You, do you know Dean? Bachelor in Paradise, he came back. He I've never seen it. Had I the mustache. I'm not yeah. the guy to talk yeah, about. Yeah, me neither. Yeah. But but I don't know Rachel. But I bet, she was great. Okay, so she's you, an attorney. She's smart. She's yeah. really cool. You play this on the show mm-hmm. and before it was ever on radio. I'm pretty sure. Or no, no, it was on radio and it yeah. jumped. Does it, it was pop so hard 40s. though? After that, like yeah. Yeah. Play it? it jumped like ten spots on airplay, and yeah, top does. top of the iTunes charts. You know, just like craziness. That was that was a big jump. When you played that song on the show, did you do it over and over again? Yeah. Is yeah. It, was that like awkward too? Is are you just playing with them? Damn. Like, what was the scene? What was that so whole thing? So awkward. Uh, well, they were late, first of all. So it all started where we f- never had a tour bus before. No. But we yeah. got to like ride down in a tour bus. and to, then To where? To South Carolina. South Carolina. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then, so we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. I think Chris Harrison like was, felt bad. So he comes on our bus and, you know, we have a, we raise a toast, we have a, have a drink and we're just like hanging out with Chris Harrison on our bus, which for us at the time we were like, oh, I was freaking God. out. We, he was there for like two hours and we shared, we had knob, right? No, no, no. It was like Maker's, Maker's Mark. Mark. Yeah. And I had him sign the bottle and I have it in my house. Yeah. Like, I mean, like I'm a fan and he oh, let us come. She, every Monday, like her and her gal pals get together and yeah. watch Bachelor. He's you also I mean? really nice. He's so nice. Yeah. He let us, he let us come to after the final rose. He was like, really? how many tickets do you want? I was like, is 12 too many? <laughs> <laughs> Legitimately, and he was like, "No, we'll make it happen." We, I mean, me and all my friends filed in. Mm-hmm. Like, it was so fun. Yeah. It was really cool to like make it a real life experience and not so like this is the show. Yeah. That's cool that you got to watch him play on the show mm-hmm. and you got to hang because you're a fan. Yeah. When you're a fan of something, it, it's yeah. so much cooler when yeah. it actually works out in a way that makes you still feel good. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it was fun. Yeah. Like it was. I think the whole thing is a crazy phenomenon. And do I think it's the best way to find someone? No. Am I highly entertained by drama that has nothing to do with my own life? Yes. yes. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Are they dancing? Is it a dance scene? Yeah, it's like a slow dance yeah. makeout scene. And how you know? many times do you think you have to play that song? 
only well, like with two. them dancing, yeah, it was like two or three. But Do they like, have to make out every time on cue? No, no, no. Oh. They just they. I had, mean, they they made out, but they wanted to. It wasn't yeah. like make out at this. Yeah, it wasn't choreographed. <laughs> yeah. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots, and Tacovas is your next stop before attending your next concert. Tacovas has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring. You're talking about men's boots, women's boots, um, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tacovas boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition, timeless style, always on trend. And Tacovas has first wear comfort, little to no break-in period. Like it's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Plus, direct-to-consumer pricing keeps the value on your feet, the money in your pocket. So stop by your local Tacova store. Have a complimentary drink. Shop the new styles. You like the smell of leather or no? I love it. Yeah. That's what the whole store basically is. Fresh leather. Yep. Friendly staff. Or like the smell of staff? <laughs> I don't know. I guess I'm sure they smell good there. Many stores have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. What a gift, too. Regular live music and events. There is no in-store experience like this. If you can't make it to a store, just visit tecovas.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S. Yeah. Yeah. Tecovas.com. Find your new favorite pair of boots today. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How do the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the Birth of Outlaw Country Music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer shaped the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed as the Boar's Nest, Sue's place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, that's where they would spur each other and tap into something bigger and something realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Backrack as Shel Silverstein and T.J. Osborne as Johnny Cash alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the boar's nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The boar's nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. This is Reba on how a bad review from USA Today ended up leading to the success of her TV show, Reba. Whenever you started to do Reba, your, your television series, did you guys get a straight deal or did you do a pilot and then the pilot got picked up? I was in the midst of doing Annie Get Your Gun. We went in in April. I took 10 days off from Annie Get Your Gun to do go to California, shoot the pilot. Then we went to Upfronts, which is in May. And I had done eight shows that week. I got Monday off. Tuesday morning was up front, so I had to be butt crack of dawn over there. And they changed the name three times. When we filmed the show for the pilot, it was the, the script was called Sally. And Narva went to him and said, you know, if you did the afternoon filming as Sally and then in front of the audience, tape it and Reba be Reba instead of Sally. Then let's see how that tests out. And they said, okay. So the the title went from Sally. By the time I got to Upfronts, it was deep in the heart because we were all from Houston, Texas, and we were the Hart family. So then there came out this thing on uh, USA Today that their publicist, publicist had said why the 
WB had ever hired Reba McIntyre for this part is ridiculous. She's not of our... Like our demo? Yeah, she's not our demographics. And so the head of the company called by the time we got back to the hotel after up front and said, terribly sorry, terribly sorry. What can we do to make up for this? Well, I'd already gone back to bed. I had a performance that night, so Narvel was talking to her, and he, he heard me get up and go to the bathroom and out of the other room, and he said, um, hang on, let me put Reba on the line. Banged on the bathroom door and said, pick up the phone. Uh, and I, so I said, hello. He said, uh, we're terribly sorry what happened and what was in the USA Today. What can we do to make this up to you? And I was half asleep, and I said, uh, well, she said, well, Narvel said if we call it Reba, you'll be happy with that. And I said, that's a wonderful idea. Thank you. <laughs> Hung up, went back to bed. So that's how I got the name Reba. And so you go, did you move out to L.A.? Uh-huh. Because it was that, like you said, hey, I, got, I just got to go. If I'm going to do this, I don't need to visit it. I need to go live it. Oh, we had to, we were there three weeks. So what happened was I got through with Annie Get Your Gun on June 23rd. We went to Ireland for a vacation. I did five weeks all-girl tour and then went to L.A., found, a, found an apartment, a condo we lived in for the first season because you never know. Right. It could go 13 weeks and you don't get picked up. But then we got picked up on the back nine. And then Narvel went house hunting and we bought a house. And we were there for six and a half seasons. Did that ever feel like home out there? Oh, yeah. I loved living in L.A. I'd I'd love to go back and do another show. Would you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Have you guys, you know, explored different versions of Uh that? Mm -hmm. Have you been close? Uh Uh-huh. Real close. Have you shot a pilot to anything? Mm, Yeah. The Mark Cherry pilot. We did uh, one called Oxblood, and uh, they passed on it. It's always a weird thing because I've shot a few pilots and had it passed on. Where I f- you feel like everybody's so pumped about it. Yeah. And everybody loves it. But then mine have been talk shows. And like, oh, this is it. We, it. Research has been great. Yeah. It's been it's tested so wonderfully. Well, let's spend some money. Well, it, just right now. Well, right. So uh-huh. is that show, that show's done. That show's done, unfortunately, okay. which I thought it was going to, you know, mm-hmm. last forever. I thought I'd retire off of that show. Well, I mean the Oxblood, that show. That's it. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah. Mark Cherry. Yeah. I love his show now, Why Women Kill. It's just, he is a genius. I saw my wife watching that show one day, and I was like, why are you watching? Why? I don't know what it was about. <laughs> just All exactly was, what are your yes. motives? <laughs> like, why, why? Are we learning from this and show? And what's the notepad? We... And you're taking yes, notes. Yes, yes. What? <laughs> Here's Kane Brown's manager, Martha Earls, on getting fired before an award show for spending too much time with her new artist at the time, who was Kane Brown. And this is right before he exploded on the country music scene. I let go of other things or other people, other clients I had fired me. I remember one person fired me like the night of the CMAs because I was paying too much attention to Kane. And, and, and honestly, that was all a gift, right? Because for the first two, two and a half, three years we worked together, it was... All we did, we were so focused. Kane and I were like laser beam locked in. And if something came at me that didn't have anything to do with what our mission, I no, I just ignored it. When Cut you, it out. When you guys were kind of making your 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 early plan, was it? Hey, people are going to tell you you don't look like country music, and here's what we're going to do back at that. Um, yeah, I mean, people. It it wasn't even a. We I didn't even think about. Oh, we're gonna retaliate. There's, well, not retaliate, you but, know? but but it can be. We're gonna put out great songs over and over again. Yeah, we're just gonna they, keep doing what we're doing, right? And super serve the fans, and super serve the people that that are there for you, you know. And that's even the advice now. It's like even Kane and I talk about it now, where people are so mean on the internet, and it's like just lean into the ones that are kind, 
you know? Yeah, when, whenever I moved here, it was awful. I mean, the, the first two and a half years were awful for me here. Awful. I can't imagine. And it wasn't just Nashville, because Nashville kicked the crap out of me for a long time. But it was, you know, they took us and put us on all of these uh, country radio stations, which meant a lot of these stations had radio guys that were either retiring or they were firing because ratings weren't good. And so we weren't just feeling it on a level here at home. We were getting it in every single market. on. So I had to tell my guys, like, stay off of everything. Let me handle it. Stay off of it. But what we're going to do, we're never going to get those people. They, are ne- they, are n- they may in a couple years come back around, but we got to take our people who are with us and make sure they know that they are the most important thing and that's who we're here for. And so it was a version of that where we just knew we weren't getting those people that were, that were upset that we existed. Yeah, you we, can't. And that'll, that'll exhaust you. And why not lean into what's working? Because eventually they'll start growing. And, and for you, for Kane, for whoever, those, then they start outnumbering the dissenters. And then all of a sudden they start quieting the dissenters. And that's where you want to be. And then some of the dissenters come back around and go, you know what? I didn't really give you a chance at first. That's right. But they don't. They never say they were wrong, by the way. They never say they were wrong. <laughs> they, they're just like, you know, I hated you at first. And now, you know, my sister likes you. They won't even say they like us, but they're like, hey, my sister likes you. But I just, I know what that feels like to go and, and, and not the same way at all because we do different things, but just have everyone immediately go, you're not us and you don't represent us. When in the end... I represented them more than anything in the past that had claimed to do so, which was the craziest thing to me. Exactly. But you never were, had that opportunity to even express that. So when Kane is putting out the first music as a managed, was he signed yet? Or did you do that with him? Um, yeah. It feels complicated. Yeah, it's complicated. Okay, so <laughs> when you put mu- when you put out your first music that you're going to go to DSPs, uh, digital or radio, like your first, this is our first big release together. How, why did you choose the body of work that you chose? Like, what was it to you that that said, here, this is our entrance into the big world? Yeah, when he, so when I first started working with Kane, he had put some songs out independent. He was in a, production deal and independently had put some songs out and they did really well. So then when he made his first, like you said, it was an EP. It was a five or six song EP for Sony. It was, um, it was a couple of those songs that he had put out, you know, cause they'd never really been included in a collection of work. And then the other were when Kane, he did really work on his songwriting. When he came to town, he really worked on songwriting and found his small group. And so the others were songs that he had written that he, was proud of. And Kane was touring. He was selling out. What was crazy is he was selling out 1,500, 2,000 cap rooms without having any product out. It was wild. And so we really couldn't get that first EP out quick enough. So when you put out, what was the first song? I'm trying to think about it. Used to Love You Sober was his first kind of song. So why that one? Um, That one was a song that that was the first song he ever wrote when he came to Nashville. And he put it on social media and Kane was one of the first artists to tease their music in Nashville. At least I don't want to uh, outside Nashville, other people were doing it, but in Nashville to really tease his music on social media and the demand for it was so high that he put it out. Were you satisfied with the reaction and also the success of the song? 
Because it wasn't a number one, I don't think. It was a 30, number 37. Okay. But did you feel like, hey, we got some good traction here with the first one, or were you disappointed? Well, we put it out, and it uh, at the time, iTunes was a thing. You know, iTunes really mattered, and it did really well on iTunes. And it was number one on iTunes. And we're like, oh, my gosh, when we put this, take this to the radio, it's going to be like an instant hit. And it wasn't. And so that was a bit of a reality check. And the thing about it is with... Kane was selling all these tickets, and so we were like, you know what? We're still connecting with people, obviously, because they're coming out and seeing the show, and the song was a gold record and all of this stuff. So we just had, you just have to kind of keep moving, keep working towards something. Second song? The second song um, the label chose, it was called Thunder in the Rain. You know what? I don't remember that one. I remember the, I, I know the first one. Thunder in the Rain was went to, like, number 48. It was not... Um, not not necessarily the greatest one we had. And so Thunder in the Rain, uh, I remember when that was out, it, it was up-tempo, and it was like, okay, this is, but it was real, musically, it wasn't really as much Kane. It's not like he performs it live every night or whatever. But um, by this point, he had made a full album. And so we put out his first full album um, with a number 48 song coming off the chart. Are you guys like, it's like two worlds. It's like one world. You're selling. You're selling yeah. both both tickets yeah. and music. Yeah. Because at the time that was the thing. We actually sold downloads. But then you have, I'm assuming, these old school uh, gatekeeper radio programmers that just aren't buying it. I mean, is buying it the term that you would use? I mean, there was, I think... Uh, you know, and I would never say who I don't. I don't even know if they're still around. But I remember there was one um, one person at a station, and I and I didn't really get in the weeds on that because you know the record labels have like whole teams of people that talk to the radio and stuff. And but somehow I don't know. I think because we were doing a show in the market, and I remember I was talking to this guy, and and he, uh, I was like, hey, Kane sold out the show in your market, and. And uh, it would be awesome, like, if you could, you know, maybe, like, play the song. We'd love to. He sold out the show in their market, and you're begging for a little radio and support. He, oh, yeah. That happened everywhere. And he and the guy said, well, we don't, I, I don't play urban music. I play country music. And I said, oh, I know. That's that's wonderful, because Kane Brown is a country artist. And he said, no, he's not. And I said, yes, he is. It was like this, like, it was, like, comical almost. And yes, he is. And he goes, I know he's not. I just looked at him. And I said, okay, well, maybe you should go listen to him. And that was the end of the conversation. And he did not play the song. <laughs> I looked at him. <laughs> I know he's not country. I looked at him. And I'm assuming, again, I'm going to do a lot of assuming here, that as Kane has, and Kane's, again, and we're going to end this in a little bit, talking about how massive he is, yet still underappreciated, that, again, how massive he is, in places, that's probably still happening in a way. And I think that's probably why he's not getting the respect he deserves. I think, do you mean like for award nominations? I mean like that? for everything. You know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think sometimes, uh, I, th- I, I don't know, maybe people put their vote behind what they see themselves in and maybe they're but isn't that the same superficial thing? and don't see themselves in how somebody looks. Mm, well, then I will say it. I do think that is a major. There is just no reason that an artist, if you t- take away faces and skin color and genitals, let's pull all that off, okay? It's the weirdest shape. Sure, it's, it's like all a there. Mr. It's, potato it's, head. Yes, it's that. 
and you just line up body of work, yeah. songs, uh, streams, hits, radio, radio number ones, concert. There's no reason that Kane shouldn't be, and he is to people like me and fans, but to the people that are organizing these higher level awards, there's no reason he shouldn't be in those conversations. Thanks for listening to this Bobbycast. Hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you look at the famous failures that we had here and you leave this feeling inspired by hearing how things may not always go the way you had hoped, but it can actually turn into something pretty awesome if you just don't quit. Also, you just can't predict the future, so don't stop pushing. Be sure to subscribe to the Bobbycast wherever you're listening to this now. Rate it five stars if you don't mind. That'd be all. Because when people give us one star, we keep pushing, don't we, Mike? Mm-hmm. Keep going. We keep going. So we, we could use those five stars. We'll be back next Friday with a brand new episode. We appreciate you guys. And we'll see you next time on the Bobbycast. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots. And Tacova's is your stop before attending your next concert. All Tacova's boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tacova's has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. Stop by your local Tacova store. Have a complimentary drink. Shop new styles. If you can't make it to a store, just visit tacovas.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. You can probably spell it. You probably know it. Tacovas.com. Find your new favorite pair of boots today. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. This is the year to stop overpaying for your family plan. So choose a straight talk wireless family plan. Unlimited data, talk, and text on a reliable 5G network. And you can get a new line starting at $25 per line per month for four lines, plus taxes and fees and no contracts. That's good decision making. Available at Walmart and on straighttalk.com. Family plan discount with four lines, all on the silver unlimited plan. Not combinable with auto pay discount. In times of traffic, your data may be temporarily slower than other traffic. Video streams at up to 480p.